Good morning, Pacific Hope Church. This Lord's Day, as we come together united as a blood-bought family of Christ, we celebrate together, we mourn together, and we pray together. This is our 17th Sunday moving through the book of James. As we've moved through this, we've had a chance to, to look at our faith with the mirror of God's law, to evaluate the authenticity of our saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Perhaps uh, it's fitting that the culmination of James' letter is an evaluation of our prayer life, the authenticity of our, our communion with the Lord. Prayer is a language of faith, and it gives evidence to our individual and our collective authenticity of saving faith in Jesus Christ. So it's appropriate that we begin by going to our Lord and Savior in prayer. Let's pray. Father God, we come into your presence this morning grateful. Grateful for the opportunity that we have to approach your throne of grace. We pray, Lord God, that as we examine your word, that it will also examine us and that we would not be found wanting. Father God, we pray for the conviction and the consolation of your Holy Spirit as we move through this precious text this morning and ask that you be glorified in and through the life of every member of this body of believers. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Before we move through the verses uh, I plan to text, uh, look at in a scripture today, it's important for us to recap our biblical theology of prayer as it's presented through the epistle of James. First of all, it's Noteworthy that as we move through this study, we've seen time and time again that James takes us back to the Sermon on the Mount. You see, James's theology of prayer isn't his own. It's that of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen in Matthew as we've looked at the Sermon on the Mount that we have a Father who desires to give to us. We have a Father from whom every good and perfect gift comes. We're given the example of praying according to the Lord's prayer. May his will be done. You see, these are the statements that James makes to help us understand prayer. And James' letter begins with prayer in full view. The first identification of, of the theme of prayer in James was back in chapter 1. We saw beginning at verse 5, James says, If any of you lacks wisdom... Let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. When we looked at that text, we learned that, that God gives without reproach. That means even though we come to him time and time again in our neediness, he never grows tired of hearing from us. He gives generously because that's his nature. He's a loving father. Verse 6 of James chapter 1 says, But let him ask in faith without doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of a sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. As we went through that, that message beginning the book of James, we saw Peter as an example. Peter, who got out of the boat, and though he wanted to go to Christ, he feared the waves and his circumstances more than he feared God. We can't be double-minded. It says, for the person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord, for he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. 
James, in his letter, begins our understanding of prayer with a reminder that God is generous and that our fear needs to be in him. Mark preached in his prayer this morning, didn't he? (laughs) Praise God for that. Sometimes we fear death more than we fear sinning against God. That shows up in our prayer life. In chapter 4 of James, prayer comes up again and, and we see James saying, you do not have because you do not ask. And as I think of the test of the authenticity of our faith, prayer is a gauge of the authenticity and the intimacy of our relationship with God. You do not have because you do not ask. Suppose you, you have an acquaintance and you say, oh yeah, I know and so and so. And they, someone responds and says, well, when did you talk to him last? Ah, oh, it was years ago. It's very different than saying, I know so-and-so, and I just talked to him this morning, right? If this is the God that we have, the relationship that we have, our prayer life is indicted by James. You do not have because you do not ask. And immediately following that statement, James gives us another indictment of our prayer life, and he says, you ask and you do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. Our prayer life is often more focused on ourselves than it is on the glory of God, than it is on the coming of his kingdom, than it is on the well-being of our brother and sister in Christ. So what James tells us about prayer is going to sting just a little bit. In this week's text, we're going to begin reading at verse 13 of James chapter 5. We'll see that, that prayer is something that is done not just in the intimacy of us talking to God, but it has community impact. It's the entirety of the body of Christ. This family, we're all given instructions about prayer. I'm going to invite you, if you're able, to please stand out of reverence for God's holy and perfect word. We're going to read from verse 13 to the conclusion of this beautiful epistle. The word of God says, Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing them with the oil, with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And for three years and six months, it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and earth, the earth bore its fruit. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. This ends the reading of God's word. You may be seated. James begins this last portion with his famous rhetorical questions. He asks, in a style like Paul's, three questions. He says, is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call. 
for the elders. We see three different scenarios here. Scenarios of prayer. The first one is praying for someone who is suffering. The second is praying with thanksgiving when there's rejoicing. The third is praying for a physical malady. Now, if you understand that James is writing to a group of believers in a church, you'll understand that in any given church, on any given Lord's Day, if there's more than a couple people there, somebody is going to fit into one of those categories. Maybe you're here this morning and you feel like you're in all of those categories. But the truth of what was prayed this morning, what was said this morning, is that we are called as a body of believers to pray for one another, to rejoice with one another. In fact, Mark mentioned Romans 12, 15 through 16, which says, Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. We need to understand as we look at these three different scenarios where prayer is needful, that this is about life in the body. As believers, we need to have a deep empathy for one another, and go through these times of prayerful dependence on the Lord in community. If there's someone among us who is suffering, and indeed there are, it says let him pray. Pray for that person. We see the, the portion there about rejoicing. It says, is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Interesting that song is a prayer language. As we are blessed by our ministry team in in worship, we recognize that each one of the songs that we carefully sing and the words that we carefully evaluate is a prayer to the Lord. Some of the brothers here this week will have the opportunity to go to Shepherd's Conference this week, and I'm looking forward to to praying with a hymnal in front of me and 2,000 guys by my side. There's nothing more beautiful than hearing God's people in song together. Amen? It's going to be rich. And that's what we're called to do when, when there's a spirit of rejoicing that bubbles up in song. We do it together. Interesting that, that Paul's word says, live in harmony with one another. It's like a musical term, right? We're all singing off the same sheet of music. We're all going through that same experience together. And then this text deals with, and we'll spend a, a good portion of the time this morning looking at, at physical maladies. Is anyone among you sick? And then James gives very pointed instructions for what's supposed to happen when there's an illness in our midst. James says, is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. Now this is a really important statement for a number of reasons. First of all, it doesn't say let him call his pastor. It doesn't say let him call one of the elders. It says call the elders. It also says, let him call the elders of the church, right? We saw back in chapter 2 with this hypothetical scenario where somebody comes into the assembly and James uses a word that's kind of Jewish in nature. It might sound a little bit like a synagogue or an assembly, but here James is clearly describing what is the church of blood-bought followers of Jesus Christ. And he talks about elders. Why is it that he calls for the elders? Well, we need to remember what we've learned about eldership, and remember what we've seen practically as a body of believers as we've watched Mr. Ackerland live out biblical eldership. 
Hey, why do we call the elders? Well, we call the elders because they are given the charge of being overseers. They're the responsibility over this local body of believers. They're the overseers. But not only are they the overseers, but they're also the under-shepherds. They're the ones who have been given the charge by the Lord Jesus Christ to care for the sheep. Nobody's going to be more capable of, of empathizing the pain that you're going through. Nobody's going to be more capable of understanding the things that you're facing than Christ himself. And so it's appropriate that Christ's under-shepherds are the ones who are called to respond. There's also something really important to understand about why the elders are called for this particular situation, and that pertains, we get a little clue a little later on in the same text. James says at the end of verse 16, he says, The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it is working. We have studied God's word together for different lengths of time, and we understand, first of all, that no one's righteous. The word of God makes that perfectly clear. Of our own merits, we are not righteous. The word of God also makes it clear that Christ himself became our righteousness. So if we have placed our faith in Christ, we are positionally righteous. But the type of righteousness that's being described here is that of practical righteousness. That is a, a righteousness that says, I understand that, that Christ alone is my righteousness. I'm going to walk in fear of that and allow God to sanctify me. The elders, as hard as it is, are called, just like every other believer, to practical righteousness. And brother, I thank you for God's working in your life of positional righteousness. And I thank you for your faithfulness in showing and allowing God to work out in your life practical righteousness. Thank you for your example. It's also important as we go back to this text, it says, let him who is sick call for the elders. Why are we calling for the elders? Well, there's, there's two different scenarios that come to mind here. One's a little bit of conjecture, and that is that these elders are, in many cases, as we know from Scripture, bivocational. The word vocation means calling. They've got two callings. They're doing something else. They've got a calling to care for their families, to care for their households. They've got their day job, and they're stepping away, and they're going to attend to one who is sick. Bivocational, two callings. I'm going to wake one of our sidebars to my brother Ryan. Normally when we preach, we're very careful that we're, we're preaching God's word. But I think it's appropriate to recognize um, what our faithful brother has done in serving and living out scripture before our watching eyes. And, and I would say that for more than a decade and a half, you've been bivocational. You've demonstrated effectively two callings. A calling to serve your family and a calling to serve Pacific Hope Church. So it's with, with joy and sadness that we recognize that you're being given a new calling. And as much as it is my own desire to, to see you have a season of rest, to see you have a season of um, focusing on your family, what we do know about vocation and about calling is that his gift and his calling are irrevocable. So enjoy some rest, but the calling is irrevocable. <laughs> the other reason we see in this verse that it says, let him call for the elders of the church is because it's very likely that the sickness that is being described in this text is that of somebody who can't go to the elders, him or herself. 
it, we would be right to picture a, a bedside, a season of sickness that is so debilitating that it's not possible to go to church for prayer. So it says, call for the elders and, and let the elders come and let the elders pray over him. Anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. This is something that's biblically sanctioned. When there's, when there's a, a, an extreme sickness, the response is, call for the elders. There's some preparation that goes along with that, right? It takes some time. The elders come. The elders are to, to pray over this person and to no, anoint them with oil. This is kind of a strange practice. This isn't something we really understand. You should know that there actually is oil here in this church for the purposes of anointing. This oil is not supernatural. This is olive oil. For those of you wives who want to, you know, elbow your husbands and say, see, there is a reason to buy essential oils. Okay, these are not essential oils. These are, there's this, nothing supernatural about this, but there is some symbolism with the anointing of oil. A couple of different explanations from commentaries that I found um, offer three different ideas. The first is that the oil is actually something medicinal. You see, Scripture tells us in various times that there are reasons for using medicine, right? There's the balm from Gilead. There's Paul telling Timothy, take a little bit of wine for the purposes of your digestive problems, right? So it could be that the elders are supposed to bring a particular type of medicine, right? When I was in high school, I uh, had a lawn mowing business and there was a church in town that did not believe in anything related to uh, medical care. So we'd always joke, make sure you don't cut your foot with the lawnmower because all they'll do is pray for you. They won't let you go to the hospital, right? <laughs> so one particular explanation is that potentially the elders coming with oil is an affirmation that our prayer to God is also accompanied by medical intervention. Another possible explanation is that this is a sacramental anointing with oil. This is something that, that allows us to, to understand that something is taking place by the application of this oil. This is a very um, Catholic view, a view that a priest might come and administer perhaps a last rite and apply, apply some oil, and that that would be representative of forgiveness of sin. And this is not a view that we would espouse. The third and most probable explanation is that this anointing of the oil is something that's symbolic. It's symbolic of the, the covering and the ownership of the Holy Spirit. We anoint a believer because we are symbolizing the fact that their inheritance is in heaven, sealed for them. In any case, the instruction is pray over them, anoint them with oil. In whose name? In the name of the Lord. In the name of the Lord Jesus. In verse 15 of James chapter 5, we see the answer. And the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick. And the Lord will raise him up. Those are bold words. Those are words that test the very core of our faith in Jesus Christ. Is God a God who heals? Is God a God who saves? Yes. But here's the thing. We've seen in James that he says, pray without doubting. You've got to have pray with faith. And as we skipped ahead, we also see that there's some positional righteousness that comes into play with prayer. 
trying to go to God with unconfessed sin inhibits your prayers. That's throughout scripture. We'll look at a couple of examples in a minute. But if we've got enough faith and we've got some positional righteousness and we've got some practical righteousness, then why aren't our prayers answered? And it wouldn't take much thinking to know what goes through the hearts and minds of this body of believers with the year we've faced. Why is it that God hasn't healed some of the people that we've loved? Why hasn't he raised them up? Did we not have enough faith? Did we not have enough righteousness? Did we not call the elders? Did we not bring the oil? The thing is, Deo volente. God's will. We pray according to God's will. That's the example that Christ gave. Your will be done. I'm going to read a, a couple of paragraphs because I can't say it any better myself. And I'll try not to be emotional in doing it, but Douglas Moo, you can lighten it up a little bit by chucking at Moo's last name yet again, um, takes us to this understanding that it's not our faith and it's not our righteousness that are the only factors that determine how God answers, but it's his sovereign will. Moo says, Answering such a question involves us in the finely nuanced, broader issue of the relationship between God's sovereignty and our prayers. But we can say, mu- we, we can say this much. The faith exercised in prayer is faith in the God who sovereignly accomplishes his will. When we pray, our faith recognizes explicitly or implicitly the overruling providential purposes of God. <laughs> We may at times be given insight into that will, enabling us to pray with absolute confidence in God's plan to answer us as we ask. But surely, these cases are rare. More rare even than our subjective, emotional desires would lead us to suspect. A prayer for healing, then, must be usually qualified by a recognition that God's will in the matter is supreme. And it is clear in the New Testament that God does not always will to heal the believer. Paul's own prayer for healing offered three times was not answered. God had a purpose in allowing the thorn in the flesh and that messenger of Satan to remain. The faith which, which we pray is always faith in the God whose will is supreme and best. Only sometimes does this faith include assurance that a particular request is within that will. This is exactly the qualification that is needed to understand Jesus' own promise. You may ask me for anything in my name, and I will do it. To ask in Jesus' name means not only to simply utter his name, but to take into account his will. Clearer words couldn't be said. His will is supreme. His will is sovereign. Our prayers of faith and our understanding of the righteousness that he has given us our response to understanding his sovereignty. He is good. Returning to our text in James, recapping verse 15, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. It's interesting that in the middle of this discussion of of prayer, we've seen different instances where prayer is needful. There's prayer in the times of suffering. There's prayer in joy. And there's prayer in sickness. But now, 
the thrust shifts a bit and we see the topic of confessing our sins. You see, despite the fact that the Gospels are full of instances of Christ's healing ministry, principally Christ came to preach the good news of salvation, to preach repentance, to preach forgiveness of sins. Turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Luke chapter 5. I'm going to begin reading at verse 17, an incredible account. The God-man in person demonstrating his will, demonstrating his power, and demonstrating the fact that his chief desire is not for the physical restoration, but for the spiritual restoration of those that he loves. Luke 5, 17 On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and to Judea and from Jerusalem. And the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. Now stop there for just a second because you see the, the community that's happening here? These brothers, these guys, are concerned about the physical well-being of their friend, and they took him to the one who was doing the healing. They took him to the feet of Jesus. There's a sermon right there. Verse 19, but finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles in the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, man, your sins are forgiven you. I'm not sure how he says man. That's an interesting one. Man, man, I'm not sure. But you know what he says first? He says, your sins are forgiven you. The guy's on a stretcher. He's unable to walk. There's throngs of people. And the first thing he says, your sins are forgiven. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, who is this that speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And when Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you? Or to say, Rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the man who was paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. But I've wrestled with that rhetorical question so many times. Jesus says, which is easier, to forgive a man or have him get up? <laughs> the answer is clear. The supernatural is the dealing with our souls. The dealing with removing an innumerable list of sins that offend a holy God. You see, the amazing thing is the power of the gospel to forgive us. If he chooses to heal our physical temple, then glory to him. But he gets the glory because he first and foremost laid down his life for the forgiveness of our sins. Consider what Jesus said on the cross. His hands and his feet nailed. What did he say? Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. The primary interest of our Lord and Savior, 
is to deal with our sins, to deal with our heart, to deal with the spiritual condition. The physical body, it's wasting away. Our treasure is Christ in us. Just to lighten it up, my one-liner for the morning is, hey, we're treasure, we have this treasure in jars of clay. We're just crackpots or <laughs> crackpots, however you choose to say it. But Christ died for the forgiveness of our sins, brothers and sisters. Going back to James chapter 5, verse 16 starts to give us a, a little bit of an interesting understanding of what this confession of, of sins is all about. I'm grateful for Mark's example in leading us in a time of quiet reflection and examining our souls, which certainly need moment-by-moment -moment evaluation as we work out our practical righteousness. This verse here says, Therefore, confess your sins to one another. This is the only time in Scripture where we find a, an admonition to confess to each other. A number of years ago, a pastor friend of mine in Honduras were visiting a part of the country that had a, a very beautiful Catholic uh, cathedral. They had the doors open for the general public, and no one was around, so he snuck in and found that the confessional booth was open. And so my pastor friend sat in the confessional booth, and I snuck in next to him, and we took a quick selfie. And it was probably a little bit disrespectful, and I shouldn't have done it. But it did bring to light the fact that as evangelicals, as believers of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we have no need to confess to anyone other than Jesus Christ. Right? If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Yet, Scripture tells us to confess one to another. In the intimate confines of, of having a spouse, having an accountability partner, having someone else in your Bible study, there are merits to confessing something that you're struggling with. God uses that. I want to share a quick quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer. This is from a book entitled Life Together. The quote is this, Sin demands to have a man by himself. It withdraws him from the community. The more isolated a person is, the more destructive the power of sin over him. But a confession to a fellow brother or sister destroys this deadly autonomy. It pulls down the barrier of hypocrisy and allows the free flow of grace in the community. For those who have perhaps been through a season of life where they've been away from the church or out of the church, be mindful that God uses these relationships within the gospel community of the church to allow us to confess to one another. Going back to James, we also have to understand that, that confessing to one another, there are certain sins that are public sins that affect all of the congregation. We saw this together as Pastor John preached through the book of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, we have Achan that was given very specific instructions. Don't take stuff and treasure it more than God. Curiously, what he took was a cloak eaten by moths, gold, and silver corroded. He took those things, even though God told him not to, he put them underneath his tent, and then the entire nation of Israel was defeated because of his disobedience. Unfortunately for Achan, his coming clean didn't end so well. But for us as a body of believers, know that our disobedience that our bitterness, that our disunity affects everyone. There is a time and a place to confess to one another. That's what James tells us here. Be careful. Be careful. Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another 
that you may be healed. Then we see again, the, the prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. This is the, the righteousness that is afforded to us through Christ alone with the, the positional righteousness knowing that we have gone to Christ, that we have confessed, and that we have been forgiven. David says in Psalm chapter 66, starting at verse 18, he says, If I had cherished iniquity in my heart, my Lord would not have listened. But truly God has listened. He has attended to the voice of my prayer. Blessed be God, because he has not rejected my prayer or removed his steadfast love from me. The prayer of a righteous person has great power as it's working. And then we get this example from the Old Testament. James then takes us to Elijah as an example of a positionally and a practically righteous individual. Was he sinless? No. In fact, look what it says. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. I looked at another translation and it says, Elijah had passions like ours. The word passions, not a good word. Right? We see worldly passions described and we're described as adulterous people. We've got these worldly passions. And so I like that translation that helps us understand that Elijah had those sinful passions just like we do. Yet, his prayers were effective. I thank God for the way everything this morning has been knit together for those of you that were in adult Sunday school hour. You understand that oftentimes our temptation when we sin is to put distance between us and God. Adam and Eve, when they sinned, they were aware of their nakedness and they fled from God. We think that our sin somehow impedes our ability to talk to God. But that's not so. Because we are positionally righteous through Jesus Christ. Elijah was a man who had passions like ours and he prayed fervently that it might not rain. And it rained for three years and six months and it did not rain on the earth. Then he prayed again, and heaven gave rain, and the earth bore its fruit. It's important for us to, to understand that Elijah was praying what God told him to pray. Elijah was aware that this was God's desire to hold back the rain. We learned last week that mercy is another way of of rain is another way of saying mercy. When he causes his, his rain to fall on the just and the unjust, that's God's mercy. Elijah said, hold back your mercy so that these people might come to you. They might turn to you. You'll recall shortly after the, the incredible scene on Mount Carmel where God sent down fire to consume the, the sacrifice and Elijah dealt swiftly with the prophets of Baal, that then God told Elijah to, to go and pray. And he prayed fervently, and then he saw a cloud like a man's fist on the horizon. And finally, God let it cut loose. God let his mercy flow in such a way that, that his power was demonstrated. In that way, we know that as imperfect sinners saved by grace, we're positionally righteous. And that our prayers have an impact. We can pray according to God's will. And then his mercy might flow on those who he desires to bring to repentance. The, 
verse 19 and 20, we'll, we'll only touch on briefly just being aware of time. The good news is we have food at close hand. So if we go a little long, you'll forgive me, I assume. Verses 19 and 20 are hard ones for us to understand. James transitions a bit from the topic of prayer at first glance, and he says, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wanderings will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. What James is describing here is tough for us to understand. He says, if anybody wanders from the truth, the word from, for wander there is like, looks like the word planet in Greek, like orbiting, moving about. It's really important to understand the culture and the time in which James is writing. For the Hebrew readers, the Jewish readers, our conduct is completely tied to our beliefs. But for the Greeks, what they had intellectually could vary from what was being lived out behaviorally. So when we look at this text, many would say this has to do with somebody possibly losing their salvation. This could be somebody who, who sins and commits a type of sin and, and they rescind their salvation. But that's not what we see here. What we see here in the way it's described is somebody who has a knowledge and has a faith, but their behavior strays. And that's why James is combining all of this with the topic of confession and topic of prayer. And he says, look, if you've got a brother in your midst whose behavior is not worthy of the calling of the gospel, if they've behaviorally transgressed, bring them back. And that also ties into what we're supposed to pray for. Pray for the sanctification and the restoration of our brothers and sisters in Christ. My brothers, if anyone of you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. And in this, this last verse, verse 20, we know that this is a reflection of what we saw in the book of Ezekiel. We'll recap this verse and we'll actually get to look at it one more time again next week. God says through the prophet Ezekiel, in chapter 3, starting at verse 18. If I say to the wicked, you shall surely die, and you give him no warning, nor speak to warn the wicked from his wicked way in order to save his life, that wicked person shall die for his iniquity, but his blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked, and he does not turn from his wickedness or his wicked way, he shall die from his iniquity, but you will have delivered your soul. Now, to be clear, this doesn't mean that we're saved by doing a work of evangelism. If we tell other people about our faith and we proselytize, that doesn't gain us anything in heaven. What's been gained in heaven for us has already been gained, and that's been gained through the completed work of Jesus Christ, period. But what we do understand as we look at Scripture and we understand James is that all of these things are marks of an authentic follower of Jesus Christ. See, if Christ has saved us, and we know this, then there ought to be an urgency demonstrated in our life for the salvation of others. And that's what's being described here. What we're, we're showing is this trying to save a sinner wandering, trying to explain to others what Christ has done for us, is itself the ultimate authenticity, seal of authenticity of our faith. I love the way C.S. Lewis says, we're just one beggar, telling another beggar where to find bread. And that's us. 
praying that others would come to experience the joy of the salvation that we have in Jesus Christ. As we continue in the Christian walk, brothers and sisters, there's going to be a lot of opportunities to pray for one another. The suffering that we've experienced, that's not going to go away tomorrow. There's going to be a new season of suffering. There might even be a new person or a new family coming into our midst that are suffering. Our call is to pray for them and with them. There might be things that we rejoice about. Just as we were sad that a family leaves, we might rejoice that, that God brings others into our midst. There might be new children or new marriages or lots of reasons to rejoice. And we'll get to do that together. And of sickness, there will be no end until he comes again. Pray for one another. Live in a way where we are assured of what Christ has done for us by how we treat one another. This morning we have the joy of celebrating communion, of partaking and remembering what Christ has done for us. His blood shed, his body broken. This begins with confession and confession through prayer. Let's go before the Lord in prayer and thank him for the things that we have graciously been taught through this book of James. Father God, we thank you for the privilege of prayer. God, forgive us for the times that we don't come to you and ask, or the many times that we come to you and we ask wrongly. Forgive us for those times that our prayers are so focused on ourselves that we fail to empathize with our brothers and our sisters. Forgive us for those times where we pray wanting our will and not yours. God, I just pray for Pacific Hope Church, for every man, woman, and child that's a part of this body, Lord God, that you would impress upon us to pray for one another until you come again. In Jesus' name.